<laughs> doing great. Yeah, doing great. Good morning. Good morning. How could a loving God, a real loving God, command His people, the nation of Israel, find in the Old Testament, to exterminate whole nations as they were getting ready to go in to the Promised Land? How could a God be loving and merciful and gracious who would do such a thing? How are we to understand this? We know He's a loving God. But how can He do that? Well, for one thing, we have to understand the nature of God. That He is holy. We also have to understand the nature of these people that were to be exterminated. If you understand, for example, the enormous wickedness of these people, the enormous idolatry that they practiced is so gross. Um, they, they were hopeless in what they were doing. Uh, it was totally against God. It was blasphemous. The severity of it all is to its extremity. And so when we understand who God is and His holiness and why God called for this extermination, we see that God could not preserve His people amongst these idolatrous, wicked people. They could not have the associations with these idolatrous nations. And He could not allow His people to be taken in and compromise. It's a cancer. Idolatry is such a cancer that it would take in His people who were called to be holy and they would have drifted right into the same actions and same kind of sense that the people in those other nations were living. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good morals. Uh, The text last week said, be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. Of course, we have to go into the depth of that and explain that because we all know that believers work with unbelievers. Believers are in families with unbelievers. Believers are to take the Gospel to unbelievers. So how can they totally separate from them? At the same time, we see that they are never to compromise. And what compromise does is it debilitates God's very eternal purpose that He has. There's a separation that is biblical and that's what we dealt with last week and it goes into our verse that we're looking at this week. By the way, it's good to have some of you back from the ice uh, storm that we had. It was pretty wicked in itself last week, wasn't it? But we did have church. There were very few of us here, but we still had it. And um, we're thankful that we can be here today. This time, there's a lot of people either traveling, they're on the road somewhere else, or they're sick. A lot of them are sick. And uh, that's not a good thing there at all. So uh, we are separating from those sick people today. (laughs) Stay home. Keep it there. (laughs) Kind of. Kind of. We're still battling it, right? At any rate, and and we're thankful that uh, it didn't knock us totally out. (laughs) Separation of God's people from the idolatrous unbelievers. That's a concern that God has. And it should be on our hearts too. He says uh, in the text that we looked at last week, Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate. What does that mean, right? Do not touch what is unclean. This is a divine mandate. This is a command from God. It's not just something that He suggests. We who are the children of God must conduct ourselves that would be comparable to what God has given us to be. To be ye holy, He says. To be separated unto Him. And when you think of uh, separation, you think historically, uh, the early church, you saw how they separated from their old religion and clung to Christ Then we see historically a group by the name of the Puritans, people who uh, many people in America are familiar with today. It has a bad connotation to most people. It has a bad ring. 
because they will say, oh, they are Puritan, uh, Puritanistic. Uh, probably don't even hear that much. Uh, maybe some people don't even have any idea anymore. We've lost so much of history. But the thing is, uh, history sometimes gets things wrong. Who the Puritans were, were a group of people who wanted to separate from the things that were happening in the church. There were things such as statues and incense and altars and the ceremonial candles and the vestments. All the things that were outward things that were really never part of the true worship of God. People worshipped those things, the outward things, the smells, the, the sounds and different things that would go on that would make people feel that they're religious and actually it was idolatry. And the Puritans wanted to separate from that. They wanted to go in and cut those things out, to take them out of the church. They wanted the church to be pure and holy in its worship of God. So therefore, that's how they got their name. The Puritans as a whole lived for the glory of God. If you look at their writings, you'll see that they desired to live pure and holy lives. They preached the gospel and they lived the gospel. They were ones who God had separated, had set forth. Uh, We know in in history there were a group of them that were called the Separatists, and they left England and went to Holland, where it was a little more free there, but uh, the the only thing is uh, the the people there weren't too pure and holy. It was uh, very, uh, I guess you can say, paganistic in the way that they lived their lives, so it was rubbing off on their children. And that's why many of them came then here to America to have freedom to worship God without all that other stuff that was trying to adorn Christianity and it was just a dry, hollow religion. And so therefore, the... The separatists and then the Puritans, they basically believed the same thing. They believed in a sovereign God. They wanted to separate from sin and evil. And uh, so you had the English Puritans who have much of the great writings of the 1600s that is true Christianity. And then you had the American Puritans and Jonathan Edwards would have been uh, really the last of them and that was in the 1700s. All that set aside, it's a lot of history, but these are people who really did live for the Lord. It's not a bad word. It's not a bad connotation to us. It's a good thing because God set these people apart. And that's why we have some of the principles that are still (coughs) hanging on today. And that was what the Reformation theology and uh, the Reformed Protestant churches were really about from the outset. And it was really about separating from evil. Reforming. We are to reform always semper reformandi. Each one of us. It's a constant thing. So, as we talk about this separating from evil and sin, it's the Christian life. This is how we got here to our text today in chapter 7, verse 1, which we'll read here very shortly. It exhorts us to be holy, to be pure. We have all the motivations to be holy, to be separate, to be pure, to honor the Lord. We have all the motivations that we'll ever need. We don't need any more motivations. We have them. The ideal of the Christian life is expressed in this verse today. And uh, let's grab our Bibles. Turn to chapter 7, verse 1. And that's our verse for the day, but there will be other verses preceding that, but we'll read this. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your truth here today. As we look at this, we realize You are a God of promises. You've spoke truths to us, things that will happen. You are the promise keeper. We've broken promises. Every time we sin, Lord, we break promises. We desire to repent from that. We desire to live to honor You. Help us today get the meaning a little bit more of what it is to clean out the defilement of flesh and spirit 
and perfecting holiness in the fear of God because that is the Christian life. Help us by your word and the power of your Holy Spirit. In your Son's name, amen. amen. All right, we, um, we see that he starts off with the word therefore and that's because it's just what he just said earlier. How many times do we start our messages with therefore? Lately, it's been almost every week, hasn't it? Therefore. And then the next phrase is having these promises. Beloved. Having these promises. That's the key word that we're going to focus on here for a little bit here. The promises. Paul is not appealing from commands here. He just gave commands... Now he's appealing from promises. What God has spoken, it is true. Yes and amen? Amen. Verse 14 of chapter 6 says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. There's a command. And as we go through this, we'll we'll explain that again, what what that is. We think of marriages, and that's certainly true. Some about relationships with unbelievers that... deal with spiritual things. He's not cutting all relationships off and you only have relationships with believers. Make that clear, right? But it is saying, do not let an unbeliever influence you. You influence the Gospel to them. That's really the main reason that we are to be around the unbelieving world. And we are commanded to do that. Verse 17 says, come out from their midst and be separate. Do not touch what is unclean. That's in verse 17, another command. Now, they're the commands. We should do that. God never gives a command without us having the power to do it. And it's never something we're going to work up on our own. It's by His grace. It's by His Holy Spirit that we're going to be able to do anything. Because in and of ourselves, we can't do anything to please God. Never. But it's Christ and His accomplishment at the cross that pleases God the Father. And if we're in Christ then we are to desire Christ. We are to love Him. We are to adore Him. We are to elicit gratitude, thankfulness, because of what He has done. That's why we do the things we do, not because, oh, I don't want to quit this. And I guess I'll try. You know, or i got to do this. I, or, I, I'm not going to do that again. I'll... I'll Bite the teeth down. No, it's out of privilege, out of His generosity, out of His mercy. It's a grand blessing. He doesn't take anything from us that He doesn't come back and fill the hole in with something that is good. Because He knows the other thing is not good for us. Dearly beloved, I like that right in the text. And so often Paul does that. And it's only the beloved that are going to be able to do these things. It's only Christians. Because the unbelieving world can't understand these. They don't want to do it. They cannot do it. The Christians, the beloved, can. They can do the they can think back on the promises that he is just being saying. And what we're going to do here in a moment is to start to look at those promises, those glorious gifts of grace. You'll notice in 2 Corinthians 6.16 what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. I will dwell in them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be My people. Then therefore come out from their midst, be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. Comes back with another promise. And I will welcome you. I'll receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. All those glorious gifts of grace. And He's delighted to pour upon His blessings, to lavish His blessings upon us. He loves to do that. It's not take away things from us. He loves to give us blessings. This is unmerited goodness of God, isn't it? Isn't this favor? 
Isn't this grace? You know what? He's absolutely reliable. The Bible says about His promises that they are yes and amen in Christ. Promises that cannot fail. They will not fail because God cannot, that's one of the things He cannot do is lie. Satan is the liar, isn't he? He is the father of lies. So the promises are given here in verse 1 to kind of whet our appetite or that he says the word promises. We back up and look at those promises. They call us to sanctification. They call us to being set apart. Sanctification, big word, meaning is simple. Set apart. Sanctified. Holy is another word for sanctified. Holy. Look in Second Peter chapter one verse four. For by these it's talking about his glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So by so that by them you may become partakers, look at this, of the divine nature. We have a new nature. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Can you identify with this? We are being delivered constantly away from the corruption of the world if we're being sanctified. God's doing that. But we are to work with Him. It sounds familiar if we've... Uh, some of you have been in the uh, Tuesday night Bible study. We've been dealing with uh, the confession of faith. And it deals with uh, sanctification, <coughs> holiness. And uh, here it's talking about being set apart from the world. They're magnificent. They're precious. These promises are. It's incredible, isn't it? Look in Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For as many as are the promises of God, in Him they are yes, therefore also through Him is our Amen. To the glory of God through us. Yes and Amen. They are real. He keeps His promises. Yes and Amen, Lord. There are seven, I believe, seven separate statements in verses 16 and 18 of our 2 Corinthians 6. So if you weren't here last week, you'll notice that we're getting to cover that a little bit in chapter 6. We kind of went through these like a machine gun last week. And because uh, I knew that we had, as we get into chapter 7, verse 1, it really doesn't need to be separated from where chapter 6 ended. It's, it's like sometimes you get chapter divisions and there can be a little bit of a break, a, maybe a little bit different uh, avenue that we're going to go. But here it's really connected right with 6. And it's, it's like a letter. It's, it's all making sense as it comes together. This should sharpen our hunger, our hunger for the blessings which He offers to us. Everybody likes to be blessed, don't they? Should whet our appetite. Such is the nature of the promises. Because of the promises, we desire to please God as we're being set apart, as He's doing the work, then we work with Him. It's called synergism. After we've been born again, we now work with Him. Before we couldn't because we could not. Now we can. The nature of the promise, they call us to sanctification. Let's look at some of those promises. Those seven. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. God dwells in us. He says in the next phrase, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will dwell in them. We are the temple of God. We are the temple. That's incredible. Now, 
Paul is writing to who? The Corinthians. When you study Scripture, you have to constantly ask, okay, who's, who's the writer? Who's he writing to? What's the general purpose here? That's how we interpret. And so we look at it historically. We look at it grammatically. We interpret according to rules and not just saying, well, this is what I think it means. Remember those little, little classes, Sunday school classes that sit around? Well, Jim, what, what does that mean to you? And he comes off with something that could be something totally different than what the text means. But it means to him. Well, it can be a meaning to us, and it should be. But you have to, first of all, say, what did Paul mean when he wrote this letter? What was historically he trying to stress? And it will apply to us, because God's Word is relevant all the time. You don't have to look for relevance. It's there. But let's go by the rules. And let's see what's happening. Well, in Corinth, what's going on? Corinth is a wicked city. It's a pagan, idolatrous city. Big city. And there's a church there. There were people called out of an idolatrous city to become believers in Jesus Christ. Ecclesia is the church called out from amongst a wicked city. What's going on there? Well, it's the hometown of two very important temples. We just read here that we are the temple of God. What agreement has the temple of God with idols, with their temples, right? Okay, Corinth knows all about these temples. My, it's like St. Louis has the arch, right? Kansas City has the fountains. Everybody there knows. Those are icons. Hey, Jeff City, the capital, right? Well, here you have Aphrodite. It's a temple of Aphrodite. She was the goddess of love, the goddess of fertility, the goddess of beauty. With that kind of thought, guess what? What do you get out of that? Pretty simple, isn't it? Um, that was a temple of major prostitution. Is what it turned out to be. Situated on the Acro-Corinth, a big, big hill, a, a mountain, a high fortified mountain over the city, 2,000 feet up. It was a sanctuary of uh, a god of healing. That might tell you something too. It was a fa uh, focal point of social activity. There would be invitations to people constantly. Oh, so-and-so invited me to dine at the temple of Serapis. Get invitations to go there. That was a regular social possibility to happen, to get invited there. That's what they did living in a city like Corinth. It meant to participate in cultic meals, temple worship. You're in Corinth, you're a Christian. You used to do that. Now you're getting invited to go there like you always did before. And if you went there as a Christian, it would call into question one's loyalty if you would take part of the cultic meal. Participation. That kind of participation with these pagans definitely would call into question your motives of, of doing that. How about your loyalty to God, right? Loyalty to God. The meat that they had, most of the meat that you'd buy in the markets was meat sacrificed to idols. That meat in itself is it's nothing because idols really don't exist, do they? So, it would be possible for a Christian to eat that meat and still be okay with it because God is the one who gave that meat. What can be done, though, if you go into the festival, into the idol worship itself, if we go into the place of this temple and the sanctuary, and to have union with others, you're having union with a god or goddess. You would be in partnership with them, participating in that cultic meal now. To eat that meat, to take it home, it's no big deal. But if it causes one to stumble, another Christian, somebody sees you eating that meat, is that meat, is it going to hurt you? 
extent. I know where it came from, but you know what? That meat, I can still eat. Because to me, that is not idolatry, but I'm not going to go into that temple and worship with them. And that's the idea. I'm not going to have a union with them again. That used to be my life. The church is the what? The temple of the living God. Uh, matter of fact, there's a word there, that temple, that's dealing with sanctuary. Uh, the word is naas, the most sacred part of the temple structure. Beautiful temper, temple structure up there on that hill. Beautiful place. You can imagine the sights, the smells, the sounds. It's exciting. People could really feel like they're part of a whole culture. And they were as they took part of that. So Paul's choice of word here uh, that he uses in the, as far as the temple, the sanctuary, is quite significant, isn't it? You are the temple of the living God. Now, does that ring true? If you hadn't thought about Corinth, oh, the temple of Aphrodite, the temple prostitutes, they had thousands of them there. You had your most blessed worship when you participated with these prostitutes. Can you imagine how evil and wicked it is? And he says, you know that temple they have. You are the temple now of the living God. They have fake gods. But really they are based upon what Satan gave them. They're satanic ultimately. So we go to 1 Corinthians 3, the letter... From before this, Paul emphasized this before in a couple of chapters in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 3, verse 16. Look at this. Do you not know, don't you know, that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. He lives in you. He abides in you. He sticks around. He remains in you. Don't you know that? You are a temple of the living God. You are a temple of God. The Spirit of God lives in you. I think that's pretty incredible, isn't it? Chapter 6, verse 19. Paul says that again. Corinthians know that. When they think of the word temple, what do they think of? Aphrodite's temple. 6.19 says you are the temple. Or do you not know? Don't, don't you know? Let me tell you something. Do I have to remind you this? They know this. I have to remind you. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? These are the chapters where we find this. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, then 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So 3, 6, next book, chapter 6. We are a temple. So next time somebody does some things that can damage their body, these are verses that you can show them if they're Christians. You say, don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You can't really show that to unbelievers because it's not true. The Holy Spirit does not reside in them. So you use other texts. But these right here are specifically to Christians. Temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. You don't own your body. You don't own anything. God owns it all. I've been saying that 30 years. Here we're saying it still. We don't own our body, we don't own we don't own our houses, we don't own our cars, we don't own we are just using those. God is loaning those out until we get a better body, a glorified one, and we won't even need those kind of instruments anymore. But those are on loan, you know, they're they're to be used for his glory. Verse twenty says, For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, Glorify God in your body. Because, God's saying, I live there. I dwell in you. Man, Paul, this is rather convicting. The body of the Christian. He's not not talking about Aphrodite here, is he? 
It's talking about you are now the temple. The soul, the mind of the Christian. God lives in our very body. That's why we're never to defile the body by doing things that are not truth-filled, spirit-filled. The body is for the Lord. We are married to Him. We are joined to Him. Anything else that we would do that would not glorify Him as a spiritual harlotry, a spiritual fornication. God dwells in our body. Matter of fact, it's His home. If He dwells, it's the word there is, in a literal sense, it's where God dwells. It's where He lives. It's He has two places. Actually, He lives everywhere. He's everywhere, right? He's, he's omnipresent. But He lives in, in the heavens. And He lives here on the earth in His people, in their bodies, in the church as a whole, and in individuals. Do you find that rather incredible? He has chosen to do that here. He had tabernacles at first. Then He... Solomon built a temple, a more permanent place. He was to reside there. That represented his place of dwelling here on earth. And then when that was destroyed, and then it was destroyed again, um, you have Herod's temple. And, and, uh, of course, later that that was destroyed. But the reason was is because Christ had resurrected Holy Spirit came and now He lives in each of us. He lives in the body of Christ. That's the temple. That's a great verse, isn't it? We are the temple of the living God. He dwells in us. He dwells in our hearts as it's the temple. This is His home. How else can we say it? And then we read this. I will dwell on them. Is that a promise, folks? Amen. What a promise. He dwells in us. He lives in us. Number two, He walks among them. He walks among us. Um, to walk among literally means to walk in and around. Para. You have uh, the word in, which is in. Then you have peri, which is around. And pateo means to walk. To walk in. To walk in. To walk around. God doesn't merely exercise Himself as an owner just to own us. He has a right. He owns us. But He moves in us. He walks around in us. From one one room of the house to the next room of the house. You've all heard this story where there, of course there are people who have different compartments. There's certain rooms that they don't want God involved in. You're welcome here and here and here. That room, no, no, no. Actually, that's a closet. It's just That's just for me. And so therefore, that really doesn't pertain to you, Lord. <laughs> you don't really own that part. He walks in us. He arranges the house. If He owns the house, He's going to arrange it. He's going to do what He wants to do with us. God dwells in His people. He walks about in them. It kind of makes it real, doesn't it? It's His dwelling place. It's His house. His indwelling becomes more and more set apart to Him. More pure in heart. Progressive sanctification we believe in progressive sanctification. That means there's progress being made. Even when there's been some steps back, God will use them to put us back on the path and so therefore it will make us go forward. If we're really His, I can tell you, 
He's going to make sure you're in the right direction. It may appear for a while, and this is what we're going to be deal, dealing with, with on Tuesday, so I don't want to give everything away because we have too many other promises to go through. But a good householder is going to clean the dirt, right? He walks in his own home, in the souls of his people, in, in their thinking. He draws attention of their sin to them. And He brings it out and it convicts us. That's His work. He will work in us as we work it out. Philippians speaks of that. Chapter 2. He's putting out of our lives evil habits, evil practices. And we are to help Him order and organize the more God fills our life as we are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Colossians says to be filled with the Word of God. If you're being filled with the Word of God, you are being filled by the Spirit of God. Huh? So I just want to be filled with God's Spirit. I want to feel it. No, no he didn't say that. He says, be filled with the Word of God. If you have the feelings, well, fantastic. It's great with it. But it's not seeking the feelings, it's seeking His truth and letting Him do that work. I don't feel like doing that. Yeah, but He says in His Word to do that. Oh, that's right. He owns this. He owns me. What else do we do when we have our homes? We not only want to clean them, but we want to beautify them, don't we? At least the ladies know about that. Put up some decor. We don't simply clean them, but we will make this house presentable. Some things that make us feel at home. God, in His beauty, makes us ornate, decorative. Not necessarily on the outside, but maybe so, yeah, a little bit. He says in 1 Peter 3 4, the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. A meek and a gentle, quite spirit. Those are virtues, excellencies of the indwelling of Christ. The beauty of Christ, the beauty of Christ can shine through us. That's what we want. We want this place to be a beautiful home. We want Christ to be shining through us so that people can see the light and glorify God. Right? So there's, there's the second promise. I will dwell on them. And not only will I dwell on them, I'm going to walk amongst them. I'm going to walk in them and around them. And I'll be their God. There's the third promise. And we're going to go through these promises now very quick. This is rapid fire now. The essential principle of exclusive possession right here about God being God and we are His people. There's two promises right in a row. He is our God. We are His people. Remember the Mosaic Covenant? You know, Even dealing with the law. But He, he had said, I'll be your God. You be My people. Look at that covenant. God has done. And then it says in 17, of course, there He gives a command. It comes back and right at the end of 17 it says, and I will welcome you. Come out from their midst, separate. Do not touch what is unclean out of the Old Testament. I will receive you. You're mine. I'll receive you take you in. If the Corinthians do this, the pledge is is that God will receive them. They can only do it if they're born again. They can only do these things. You can't work it up in your own mind and thinking. But He says, I'll receive you. Because He says, and I will be a father to you. Now is that a promise? In the Old Testament, that was quite unheard of. To call God Father. Who are you to have that kind of... He's the king, but he's you can't call him father. Well, actually, Jesus clarified that. So this is how I want you to pray. 
our Father. We have a Father we can run to. He runs to us first, doesn't He? We can run to Him. He has His arms open wide. That's the idea of receive. I'll welcome you. You ever seen somebody you haven't seen in a long time and you they're running to you and you go, oh no, what am I? No, you go run to them too. You put your arms around them and you hug them. They hug you and you receive each other. Isn't it beautiful? This is the Father. The prodigal son. You remember the father went out running for the son who had left. He came back. The Father was waiting for him. Boom! He went out after him. The Father. And we are His sons and daughters. We are His children. Is that a promise? That's the sixth one there. That means there's a family likeness. If you're in a family, you are like your Father in many ways. It's a family affection between God and His children. Or like him. Romans eight fourteen. Oh, this is exciting. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, all who are Christians. You can say that's something magical, isn't it? Uh, can you be a Christian without the Holy Spirit? Absolutely not. If you are a Christian, you have the Spirit of God. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not a Christian. It's as simple as that. So he says that. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, you're being led by Him. These are sons of God. And he goes on, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Daddy! The most intimate term that could be done in the Aramaic. Abba, Father. And the Holy Spirit tells us that we're children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs of God, it says. Wow. Can you imagine the affection that God the Father has for us? What a promise. I'll be your Father. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. You'll be my children. I think that's seven of them, right? Let us take heed to these promises. Because it says at the end of verse 18, says the Lord Almighty. The Almighty God says this. He's the one that speaks. This isn't me telling you, you have to do these things. You better be good. I don't have to do that. I just read the Word. We can explain what it means, but it's the Holy Spirit that is the one who is going to make the effect. But you still have to let Him lead you in that sense. By the Word of God. So, we go to number two now. We go to our text. <coughs> the duty. Now here's the duty. Oh, we got the promises and now we have a duty. Oh, that's pretty tricky. <laughs> He just set us up, didn't He? Actions are not based upon what you yourself can do because you'll fail every time. So will I. So will everybody else. Actions are based on what we just talked about. God's promises. Because of these promises, why wouldn't you want to just yield to Jesus Christ, the beautiful one, why wouldn't we? Romans 12.1 says something of that same nature. After you have 11 great chapters, awesome chapters, tremendous chapters in the Bible that just glisten. And then chapter 12 now says, okay, because of this, here's what you do. Therefore, I urge you, I call alongside, I beseech you, I exhort you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Think of the mercies of God. Think of the promises of God. Think of the grace of God. Think of the love of God. To present your bodies, which is a spiritual temple, a living and holy sacrifice. What are sacrifices when you bring them to the temple? They're dead. They die. You have to kill them, right? Well, it's been done. That was by the Son. 
we now are living sacrifices, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God because of Christ, which is your spiritual service of worship. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't let it mold you. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, putting into place the word of your the word of God every day into your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God. What's the will of God? You have to keep searching the Scripture out to see what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. We get that word in our text in chapter seven today too. Say perfect. No man can be perfect. Father said, "Be perfect, for the Father in heaven is perfect." He said, "Are you are you teaching perfectionism?" <laughs> we'll get to that word in a minute. By the way, no, we're not going to be perfect till Christ comes back. You know that, right? What does he say here? Having these promises, beloved. Okay, if you have these promises, we just did seven of them. They're just absolutely incredible. You really get down today or tomorrow or some midweek, getting the blues or whatever. Look at some of these promises. Go back to chapter 6. Promises are all over. Just just start with this. We're the temple of God. He dwells here. He, he lives in us. He cares about it. He, he cares about this temple. He walks in us. You know, look at all those. Actions are based on God's promises. Here is how we do these things. He doesn't command us to do things without His Spirit, without His power. He would never ask us to do those things as Christians. Second Peter 1.3 Seeing that His divine power has granted to us, given us, graced us, Everything. What? Everything pertaining to life and godliness. What a promise there. Through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. He did it out of His own glory. For His glory. It's His excellence that called us. For by these He has granted to us, graced us, His precious and magnificent promises. Why? So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Oh, think of the corruption. That's why He then says, Start applying diligence, faith, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. Those things are qualities of yours. And they're increasing. You're not going to go around doubting these promises. You know, glorify God. You're going to be thankful. But if these qualities are not in your life, you need to check and examine yourself out. Check out the calling Check out your calling, brethren, he says later. Be diligent to be certain about this calling and his choosing you. Why, why isn't love? Why isn't there moral excellence in your life? Why isn't there knowledge? Why isn't there self-control? Those kind of things. If they are fruitful, have no reason to doubt. Okay, we have to move on. Let us cleanse ourselves. The word there is catharsis. It's related to that word. You've probably heard of that word, catharsis. Um, this is all dealing with progressive sanctification. There are many in the body of Christ. There are denominations who don't really teach a progressive sanctification. They go to extremes, either perfection, or you can reach a point where you never sin again, which is absolutely false. Or in the other sense, they say, we have so much sin and we battle it, we'll never progress doesn't matter what what if you're saved you're saved but the thing is is that you'll never be sanctified until Christ comes back and you get a glorified body do you see the extremes that's in the body of Christ today and we have to look what's this word mean it means to prune away it means to clear to clear out the ground of weeds that's the idea of 
catharsis, a, a washing, a, a cleansing, a purification. That's the thought. First Peter one fifteen. Should be familiar with this one. It comes out of the Old Testament. We could have turned there too. But like the Holy One who called you out of darkness, out of sin, out of corruption, the Holy One called you. Be holy, set apart, sanctified yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. There is the sense. Wash, cleanse yourselves. He does it, but we do it as obedience. We're to cleanse ourselves. We can't, of course, do this in the energy of our own flesh, can we? The monasteries and the nunneries have done that. And I feel profoundly sorry for them because they want to get to a point. They can they actually spend their entire lives trying to make themselves holy. If they can get away from anything that tempts them of sin, then they can be holy. And they will never have those thoughts. They don't understand something. It's the nature of man. The nature of sin. The depravity of man. Those churches don't teach that you must be born again born of God. You must experience the new birth as spoken of by Jesus to Nicodemus in John 3. That's the only way we can be holy. Unbelievers cannot, no matter how much they try, and they do, to be holy. And you even have people outside of Christianity being holy as they sit amongst the the flowers and the peaceful tranquility of the Hindu gods You've seen those pictures, right? The thing is, they cannot be holy because God does not dwell in them. They've not had a new birth. Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement. What's defilement? Defilement of flesh and spirit here. Malusmas. It's a religious defilement. It's sensuality. It's immorality. Anything that stains, that defiles, that soils, that dirties people. And in one sense, you could take this word in the flesh, in the spirit, and I think you could be correct in interpreting it as, well, that's the completely. You know, the flesh and the spirit, and taking it all together. And, and I wouldn't say that, that would be wrong. You know, it, inwardly and outwardly. Okay? And, and that would be true. Let us cleanse ourselves inwardly and outwardly. I think there's something probably a little bit more. Um, I think he's saying here to the Corinthians, the church was kind of susceptible to false teaching. Remember that? Every week we speak about this. What's the text? What's context? False religion can defile the flesh panders to human appetites. The filthiness of the flesh. The false religion can give one a sensuality, a carnality. Everything which refers to the defilement of the body can mean those. It definitely means something dealing here with... um, Religious aspect. Matter of fact, when this word is used, it always refers to religious defilement. There are forms of religion that pander to the flesh, don't they? The Eastern religions, even in Christianity. I want you to listen to something. It's speaking about religious defilement. What has happened in the church in the 1900s is a very subjective, outward, Pentecostal activity. It's something that we do. It's something that we feel. We, we're going to bring it out upon ourselves. And, and if we can say words over and over again, say something that people can't understand, then people will be appeased by that. They, they're attracted to those things because it's something different. It's a slaying of the Spirit. 
It's a tongues. It's a conjuring up miracles. It's bringing forth things that people don't have elsewhere. Yeah, we, we, we read the Scripture. Now we're going to do things. We're going to make something happen. Holy laughter. Speaking animal sounds. People lying stuck on the floor like it's glue. Those kind of things people feel and there's activity happening. And people like that because something's going on there. Religious defilement. I don't see any of this in the Reformed body of Christ that got away from those kind of things. It's a religious defilement. It's an unholy alliance. The enemy. Satan loves to get on that. And rather than the simple preaching of the Word of God and teaching, we have to have more. We want to see something and we want to do something supernatural. Watch out for defilement. Because it's exactly what the enemy wants. If he can have a lot of action happening and get people turned away from what the Word of God is saying, he has got you right where he wants. And it fills the churches of our day. It wasn't around in the 1500s. Martin Luther did not introduce that. John Calvin did not introduce that. Zwingli did not introduce those things. Matter of fact, they spoke against it. Some of those amazing things. You've heard of Medjugorje. Some of the, the things in the, in the Catholic realm where there are appearances of uh, the Virgin Mary. People go there by the millions to see something, to experience something. Oh, it's just not lively enough. I want a church that has all sorts of things going up and people running around and you know doing voodoo and superstition and whatever. You know, I don't care what it is. If it's if it's for the Lord, then it's a great thing. And that's that's because we can measure that. But can we measure what's going on in the inside this morning in our hearts about somebody else? No, we can't. Somebody is doing something. Oh, wow, they must be spiritual because they're doing that and they want people to see them. They're shaking. Oh, they must be filled with God's Spirit. You don't see that in Scripture whatsoever. That is confusion. The book of Corinthians talks about that. Chapter 12, 13, and 14. And quite the opposite of those things that they're using to back up what they're doing. And so those kind of things. And it can be anything. It can be... Programs. We have this program going on, this program, and this and that. You know what you do? You hear the Word of God, and you say, hey, I want to serve God. Where, where, wherever He puts me and does this, if there are people that, that, that can work with that, here's what He's gearing me to do. Let's check this out with others. Does this check out with Scripture? Well, yeah, it's, it's good. Go do it, brother. Is it something the Lord has put on your heart? You know, Then I encourage you, you know. And if other people can go along with it, then that's good. But just to have a program, to have a program, we have this and that. We have a nursery. We have a gym. We have basketball Tuesday nights, basketball Thursday nights. We have this program. Is there anything necessarily wrong with that? I can't condemn it. Matter of fact, it can be a good thing. It can be a good outlet. But if these programs are really not Christ-driven and they're not the heart of ministry, real, truly serving, it's humbling to be a servant. It's not glorifying. The glory goes to the Lord. We can't even keep it. It's all about Him. And so this is what we do. This is what He's gifted us with. Then do it. That's what we do. We don't have to go around telling everybody we have this program, this program, oh, such and such. Well, you know what? I know somebody who's doing that. They've been doing this for years. Oh, we need this ministry. Well, you know what? Such and such does this. I know them. I know everyone here is doing things. There are things being done behind the scenes that nobody ever even knows about, but it's happening. You want to know why? Because... God lives in these temples and He's doing a work. We don't need to always see things, but it's nice to know. And the more you know people, you'll see what they're doing. They don't brag about it. We have so many different ministries here. And I'll tell you, I thank the Lord for every one of you. All the help and the service that you did for the the funeral uh, of Johnny. I was just blown away how everybody just pitched in and did what they just did. They just did it. You know, they fell into place and uh, that was God working. That's, that's a great example of how it works. You can say, well, I just brought some food. I brought a dessert. 
fantastic. Wow, that's that's edifying. But you don't know what else you've done. You, you've prayed for the family and you were there or you were thinking about think about how far this goes and the impact that it that it makes on Frida. And then like Penny, you know, Johnny's brother, she's very close to him. And so, you know, Cindy, is Cindy here? There she is. There she. Is. Okay, finally. Okay. All right. And the and the whole family. But you know, you think about that, and you go on. That's how God works. Is that? That's how. He, that's programs that are real and essential. Nothing against programs. You know, I'm I'm just trying to make a balance. Don't be outwardly taken by things that are happening outwardly, because it may not necessarily be of the spirit. Filthiness of the Spirit, he, he says here, defilement of flesh, defilement of spirit, means idolatry, idolatrous ideas, false religion, defiles flesh and spirit. The human appetites are there. Don't have your understanding and truth negated by this kind of thing. Um, we are not to expose the mind of Satan, Right? Take heed to the way that we live, the way that we speak, the way that we walk, the way that we talk. It's important that we do not receive into our minds our understanding, our teaching, our belief from any source which is inconsistent with holy and sacred Scripture. We believe in the authority of Scripture and nothing else. I don't need, I don't have to have experiences. Do they come? Yes, they do. We're talking about experience here. We're talking about obedience. That's what you have to do. And the feeling comes with that. Because if we are led by our experiences, our feelings, and trying to, to meet our felt needs, we are going to fail and fail drastically. The third one, this is where it all leads up to. I should have quit two minutes ago. <laughs> Perfecting holiness and fear of God. This is present tense. I want you to catch this. That means it's never complete in this life. It's a present ongoing. Ongoing sense. Perfecting holiness. Ongoing all the way to the time of Christ. It's difficult to maintain a holy life, isn't it? It's a struggle. It's a continual struggle. I am here to tell you that not to discourage you, but to encourage you. Because there are times, whether you ever show it or not, anybody ever knows it or not, there are times when you have battles and you lose battles. There are times when that happens. It's always a struggle. We have a problem. We're still in this flesh. We're not complete yet. But we are in a process. Ongoing. Pilgrim's progress. We are pilgrims. We're on a journey. We're progressing. We're not perfect yet. But we're perfecting. We're persevering. It's really God making us persevere. He preserves us. We persevere because He preserves us. We're not to rest in our attainments, our accomplishments. We're not to rest in the past, what we've done. We're not to just coast along now, okay, I've done my thing and I'm old enough now, I'm tired of doing that. I'm just going to sit back and let other people do it now. We should stir ourselves up. Stir one another as it says in Hebrews, stirring up one another, stirring up the love, perfecting holiness. What is the word perfecting? Epiteleo. Teleo means it is finished. Jesus said that on the cross. It is finished. The word here is epi, and it means to really finish. Really finishing Holiness in the fear of God. It's still a progressive thing. 
but it means to keep pursuing with your whole heart. And at the end of holiness, that's where we're heading, it means Christ-likeness. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Read it very quickly. This is, this is what this is all about. This is where we're heading to. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. We are being conformed to the image. One day we will be in the image of Christ. We will see Him as He is, 1 John 3, 2, and be like Him. The image of Christ. Have you thought about that? Isn't that brilliant? Isn't that promising? To be in the image of Christ. No more sin. We will be like Christ in the fear of God. There's our motivation. Fearing God reverence for God, adoration for God, knowing He's holy, fearing Him in that right sense, in the holy and separate healthy respect for Him. We know Him as a holy God. If we belong to Him, He's a holy God. We are His people. What kind of people are we? Holy people. If you're a Christian, you are holy. That means to be set apart. But he says, keep perfecting. Keep on doing this. How do you fear God? The fear of God, the beginning of knowledge is the fear of God. Right? Knowledge. Having knowledge. Having wisdom of who God is. And as a result, we will get wisdom. We will recognize the holiness that He's doing it. We are strive to live a holy life. We are to have the response to these promises that God has given. You respond. It's not I have to. No, it's how can I not do this? Why wouldn't I want to do this? His welcome. His fatherhood. Since we have these promises, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Father, we thank You for Your truth, Your Word. Help us to let Your Holy Spirit now work in us as we continue to worship here as of the congregation through the Lord's Supper and then as we walk out of this place and through the rest of the week, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. For that is how You're pleased and You're glorified. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.